Bonjour and bienvenue. Hello and welcome back to Meyer Fun Facts. I'm Steve Meyer and this is episode six of season three, a coda to the Wisconsin spearfishing controversy. Meyer Fun Facts dares ask the question, who needs Google when you have Steve Meyer? But in this case, Google was an absolute necessity in order to answer all of the questions and suggestions that I received at MeyerFacts at gmail.com concerning my interview with Joel Despain about the Wisconsin spearfishing controversy. Without further ado, let's get to the show. Previously, during my conversation with Joel, he made the following observation. And again, you know, even as we look to modern day, there's still, you know, some tribal rights being exercised, particularly at Lac de Flambeau, now having more to do with roads being blocked that they think they should be paid, you know, dollars from the county and, and people who live in that area uh, to use tribal roads. So it is important to note at the outset. This issue involves actual reservation land and not the ceded territories. The winter of 2022-23 brought to the forefront and federal court once again the decade-long simmering dispute about the use of the roads on the reservation after the Lac de Flambeau blockaded and barricaded four of them preventing vehicular access to numerous private residences. As we noted in the last podcast, the Lac de Flambeau Reservation was established by the 1854 Treaty. But within the reservation are private properties that are part of the town of Lac de Flambeau. These properties were created after the 1887 passage of the Dawes Act by Congress. The act was an attempt to assimilate Native Americans into the concept of Western living by dividing up the reservation so each family could own its own farm rather than the whole reservation being owned communally. But with the land too poor to support agriculture, Many Native Americans sold their plots to lumber companies or non-tribal members, including developers. The four roads at issue were built more than 50 years ago and provide access to property and homes owned by non-Native Americans living within the boundaries of the Lac de Flambeau Reservation. The land on which the roads were built is owned by the United States in trust for the tribe. In the 1960s, the Bureau of Indian Affairs granted 50-year right-of-way easements on the roads to various individuals, who later assigned them to the township of Lac de Flambeau. Those easements have all expired a decade ago without renewal since. So far, the federal court has sided with the tribe, and I suspect 
that some title insurance companies will need to get out their checkbook to solve the problem. Anybody who was around at the time or in any way familiar with the spearfishing controversy would immediately recognize the two individuals identified by Joel during the interview. And so, you know, you had those kind of polarizing people, Dean Christ on one side with the Stop Treaty Abuse Movement, and then you had Tom Molson, who was the chair of the Lac de Flambeau at the, that time. Those two were kind of the talking heads, if you will. But if you, if you dug a little deeper... Where are they now? Tom Molson served multiple years as president or chairperson of the Lac de Flambeau Band, but not without controversy, including in 2013, the establishment of an online payday loan center. Now 81 years old, he is no longer physically able to spearfish. He acts as a senior advisor to Torchlight Consulting, an independent, full-service, Native American-owned and operated public relations firm that serves tribal governments, tribal organizations, nonprofits, and community groups. I crossed paths with him, but more particularly his son, in that federal criminal case I tried in 1995 over the plans to build the Lake of the Torches Casino. Dean Christ would not let things go. He embarked on a multi-year strategy to use the civil rights case, the one in which the preliminary injunction was issued in 1991, as a means of relitigating the Voight Treaty case, ostensibly raising legal arguments that he and his lawyer felt that the state of Wisconsin had not sufficiently exploited. In a nutshell, Christ asserted that he could not be liable for violating the plaintiff's treaty rights because such rights did not exist. One of his more offensive arguments in support was the so-called half-blood argument, where he asserted that the Native Americans who were parties in the Voight decision never proved they were full-blooded Native Americans and thus were not entitled to the treaty rights in question. After two trips to the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals in Chicago and his lawyer withdrawing, at the end of 1994, Chris lost and was found liable for the attorney's fees incurred on behalf of the tribe. Chris then faded from public view. He wrote a book, stayed associated with the pizza business in Monaco until 2021, and now lives retired in the area. We'll be right back after this message. Meyer Fun Facts would like to take a moment to give a quick shout out to Tiplock Home Services. Now that fall is fully upon us, it's never too early to start to get ready for winter. If those projects are just too much, like cleaning your rain gutters, make sure you get a hold of Tiplock to give you a hand. Call Dan or Brock at 
7044. You can also check them out at tiplockhomeservices.com. Now, back to the podcast. One of the interesting topics brought up by Joel was the interplay between northern Wisconsin tourism and the spearfishing controversy. He noted twice during the interview. In terms of what northern Wisconsin had been in terms of tourism, how it was changing, to what extent did spearfishing have anything to do with that? But there was a lot more going on. And, you know, even take a look at, you know, the mom and pop resorts of northern Wisconsin. The fact is, I think everyone knows, if you take a look at the Wisconsin Dells and other places, families were changing the ways in which they vacation. They weren't going up to these small cabins anymore. I mean, some were, but a lot of people wanted a place where dad can golf and the kids can water slide and, you know, whatever it might be. No question tourism was changing in the late 80s, but northern Wisconsin began to adapt. An October 2003 report by the University of Wisconsin Extension Program noted that recent business trends in northern Wisconsin had included the development of new and expanded motels, up and upscale condominiums with many amenities that customers wanted, including pools and water parks. Further, new and expanded golf courses had developed throughout northern Wisconsin with more expected to follow. Casinos and their conference centers and hotels continue to draw a good and steady customer base. And all these new business developments allow for expanded tourism promotion and the development of other tourism-related businesses. But there was a downside in this 2003 report. The winter of 2002-2003 was not good for most snow-dependent businesses, with the exceptions of ski operations that made snow. In fact, many communities had had poor winter seasons for four out of the previous five years, and it had been very difficult for most businesses that depended on snow to draw any winter tourist. Overall, the positive trend has continued for the past two decades. All told in 2022, the tourism industry generated $23.7 billion in total economic impact in Wisconsin, surpassing the previous record set in 2019. The northern counties of Oneida, Vilas, Forest, Price, and Langlade, all counties at the loci of the spearfishing controversy, had significant increases in visitor spending ranging from 6.6% to over 11%. Oneida County alone realized $278 million spent by visitors in 2022. It also collected $22 million in state and local taxes, taxes that otherwise would have been paid by Oneida County residents. The Manaqua Director of Commerce commented, 
me as a resident here doesn't have to pay another $600 in state and local taxes to support all the stuff that's happening in my local community. The tourists are paying for that. They're driving more funding into our communities. Anecdotally, I can tell that I've witnessed and experienced the increase. With construction starting in 1994, the now 52 mile long Heart of Vilas County bike trail system is just a fabulous bike trail that is used by thousands. An interesting side note is that the trail comes close to the Little Bohemia Lodge, a hangout used by Chicago mobster John Dillinger and his buddy Babyface Nelson in the 1930s. According to local tourism proponents, the main problem facing tourist-based business in northern counties is the shortage of workers a statewide problem that our legislature refuses to use any common sense in addressing. But all these positive monetary numbers are hiding a problem. For a long time, many northern Wisconsin tourist activities were built around snow, ice, and frigid temperatures. Cross-country skiing, snowshoeing, ice fishing, sturgeon spearing, and multiple winter festivals. Unfortunately, from 1950 to 2020, the state's winter days warm by three to four degrees, and winter nights have warmed between four and seven degrees, with the effect of forcing the cancellation of many snow-related events and shortening the length of the winter season. Aside from the impact on tourism, there are numerous other consequences, including significantly the failure of lakes to freeze over, which presents a whole nother can of worms. We'll be right back with one very surprising development that occurred after the end of the violence at the boat landings. The Butternut Lake that Joel and I spent time at was located just outside of Vilas County in Forest County. Little did I realize we were about an hour directly north of a site that for 28 years was the focal point of a dispute between mining companies, primarily Exxon, and the Native American tribes in the area joined surprisingly by the citizens of northern Wisconsin, including outdoor fishing and hunting groups. The history of the controversy began in 1975 with Exxon Mineral and Coal Company's discovery of one of the largest zinc and copper deposits in North America, located near the Mole Lake Chippewa Reservation, eight miles south of Crandon, Wisconsin. Exxon proposed a 28-year plan to dig an underground mine and extract 55 million tons of rock while recovering about 2 million tons of zinc or copper, 
along with a nominal amount of silver and gold. Aspects of the Crandon Mine proposal left much to be desired, especially by residents living near the mining site and also downstream of the Wolf, Fox, and Wisconsin rivers. Initially, Exxon planned to dispose of treated mine wastewater directly into the Wolf River, which, given its location, would have contaminated over 120 miles of the river downstream with heavy metals such as lead, mercury, zinc, arsenic, cadmium, and copper. Since the Wolf River is the largest tributary to the Fox River, these metals would have also eventually made their way into Lake Michigan. Almost four years to the date, after the last spearfishing protest at a boat landing, in April of 1995, the day after the Wolf River was designated as threatened, Exxon announced plans to construct a 38-mile pipeline to deliver its contaminated water to the Wisconsin River near Rhinelander. It turned out to be an absolutely brain-dead proposal by Exxon as it motivated fishing groups and other sportspersons throughout Wisconsin to join the tribes in opposing the project. Opposition groups concluded that Exxon's pipeline plan was an attempt to, quote, split us up, end quote, by assuring Wolf River sport fishers that their trout stream would be safe while leaving Mole Lake to face the localized impacts of the solid mine tailings alone. Exxon's plans also included the creation of a 90 feet deep, 355-acre waste pond located at the headwaters of the Wolf River with a plastic lining to ensure that waste would not leak into the groundwater surrounding lakes and the Wolf River. Right. This pond would contain approximately 22 million tons of waste material including sulfuric acid, the most notorious of copper mining waste. If you recall, we discussed the problem of tailing ponds in the Bisbee Deportation podcast. The tailings are mostly sulfide, which, when mixed with air and water, form a toxic acid that acts as a long-term pollutant, turning rivers bright orange and it is extremely harmful to living organisms. Over the years, the proposed project would take many twists and turns until 2003. Yes, this October 28th marks 20 years since the Ojibwe Mole Lake Sokogan and the Forest County Potawatomis purchased the mine site and its mineral rights for $16.5 million, financed in part by casino profits. The land is now managed as a conservation area devoted to sustainable land management practices, tribal cultural values, and tourism suitable to this environmentally sensitive area. 
that concludes this episode of Meyer Fun Facts, a coda to the Wisconsin spearfishing controversy. I hope that the episodes so far of season three have given you a sense of my attachment to northern Wisconsin, its forest, lakes, and rivers, and my hope for its future. I would be remiss if I failed to point out that the coalition of outdoor groups and Native American tribes is forming once again to address and if necessary to stop the development of another sulfide mine, the Back 40 mine, located less than 50 yards from the Menominee River and 20 to 25 miles upstream of the cities of Marinette and Menominee. There are numerous groups involved and they all need help. Until next time, take care.